So there's a couple of things that I wanted to let you know about before we get started and jump back into Deuteronomy. <clears throat> um, on, the, on our YouTube page, Disciple Dojo's YouTube page, I've started a new series of like 10 to, 10 to 11, 13 minute-ish videos um, <clears throat> on a playlist called Pages from Sages. And what I do, there's two episodes up right now, and I go through just um, uh, books that have had a profound impact or a quote or a scene or something that I think is just interesting and I read it and talk about it and share it and it's just a way of like you know getting people maybe you've never read this book or maybe you never heard of this author or this theologian or whatever um, so I've done two so far and I'm gonna try to shoot some more this week and upload them weekly maybe bi-weekly something like that so check it out it's on the YouTube page um, youtube.com and then Disciple Dojo just search and we pull right up there's also that's where we upload the videos here each week so you miss a week cool catch the video so you can stay with where we are and we've got videos all the way back to Genesis 12 uh, so we did not have a camera before Genesis 12 those of you that were back in the early days of my tenure so but Genesis 12 to now we have every week every chapter every verse on video and on audio on the podcast so that's all part of you know you guys come and we we experience the study here in person but what we're trying to do what I'm trying to do is cultivate an online library so that people can do this study and uh, wherever they are in the world wherever they have internet access they don't obviously get the food uh, but they get to pause, rewind, and all that fun stuff that you guys can't do. So it's a trade-off. Um, and, and because of that, again, if you want to, if you're looking for a way to support, like we really do, in order to make any of this happen, um, Ruth's Chris does a great job with their uh, service to us, and, and these tips don't go to Ruth's, the restaurant. Ruth's is doing fine. They go to our friends in the back who serve us each week. So if you come and you like the meal, uh, leave the tip for them. That's what that goes to. For me, this ministry, if you want to support it, hop on uh, DiscipleDojo.org and there's a donate button at the top. There's, the page has been glitchy for like, somebody told, two people told me they tried to donate and it didn't, it froze. There was something between Squarespace and PayPal where it wasn't working. Um, but as far as I know, that's been fixed now. So it's a great way, it's a really good and, and not even great, but a vital way to keep this ministry going. Um, and to keep me being able to come do this. So humbly, I ask you, uh, the best thing is be a monthly donor, you know, 10 bucks a month. That's nothing. It's like, you know, less than a Netflix subscription, I think, or about the same price. But you get to support this ministry, and, and, and it's, you know, and it's tax deductible because we're a nonprofit. So, so many reasons to give, and um, squeaky wheels get the grease. So that's why I had to mention it because we need some grease. <laughs> to keep this going. Okay, back to what you came here for. Let's look at Deuteronomy. We looked at chapter 22 last week, and we're halfway through. Um, and, and this section of Deuteronomy, again, we always recap very briefly, and then you can go back and check the video or the audio if you want the in-depth. But we're in the part where Moses is the bulk of Deuteronomy. He's laying out the covenant stipulations for Israel to live as God's covenant people in the ancient Near East, as a theocratic nation in the ancient Near East, surrounded by Canaanites, Egyptians, uh, Babylonians, Assyrians, all of these peoples who have their own practices, their own gods, their own way of doing things, and God's going to enter into that with this thing, this project called Israel, that are all descended from this man named Israel, 
uh, who was descended from this man named Abraham, who God had made a promise that through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will one day be blessed. So we're in the phase of that promise where it becomes a national identity. And that's going to continue until the arrival of the Messiah, long time in the future, who will then take that uh, enterprise, this project that's been going on since Genesis 15, and um, Genesis 12 rather, and will then expand it to all the nations. We'll cut down the barriers between Jew and Gentile, the things that separate this project Israel from the rest of the nations. When Messiah comes, he'll actually graft in the nations into Israel. The prophets talk about this. Isaiah uh, 19, I believe, spends a good amount of this. Ezekiel talks about it. Jeremiah, um, uh, even Moses in the end of Deuteronomy. But Messiah will come in and, and will graft it, basically take Israel's identity to the nations and invite the nations to become part of Israel. That's the promise that gets laid out in the Old Testament and then it gets built on in the New Testament. But we're not there yet. We're in the part where the earthly Israel, the, the current, at the time current Israel is being formed as a people in a setting in history. And that's what's so important about Deuteronomy. You can't read, we said this at the first uh, session back in January, you can't read Deuteronomy as your law book. Because it's not. Even if you're ethnically Jewish in here, if you're a believer in Jesus, Deuteronomy is not your law book. Deuteronomy was Mosaic Covenant Israel's law book. Not New Covenant Israel's law book. So what does Deuteronomy do for us then? Why do we even study it? Well, like we talked about a few weeks ago, you read how God wanted Israel to live then because it gives you an idea of how God wants His kingdom to live now. You have to do some extrapolation. We have to do some transfer like Paul did about muzzling the ox, treading the grain, and how he applied that to a different situation in the New Testament. Again, it's on the video if you missed it. But that's what we do with Deuteronomy. So we can't do what so many skeptics and fundamentalists alike do, which is you just open the Bible, you read Deuteronomy, and you say, well, let's start keeping these laws. It doesn't work that way. And hopefully over the course of this year, you've seen how it does work. Because it is God's Word. It's not substandard. It's not, well, we don't do that anymore because time has passed. No, it's not about that. It's about events that have happened in the unfolding plan of God's history on the earth. So I say that because people will read this section that we're about to read and say, well, obviously this is Jesus came and brought a better ethic than this. And they'll just dismiss the Old Testament because of what they're about to read and things like it. And what I have to remind you in this study is we aren't free to do that. If we follow Jesus, Israel's Messiah, we're not free to take a lower view of Israel's Scriptures than He did. My, my more liberal progressive friends, and I use that term theologically, not politically, they would say, well, you know, no, we, 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 there's parts of the law that, that go in this bucket which reflects God. There's parts of the law which go in this bucket which are kind of man and God. And then there's parts that you put in this bucket which are just man-made and we ignore those because obviously we know better now. And that entire way of reading the Bible, as popular as it is among certain mainline Christians, is absolutely diametrically opposed to how Jesus Himself looked at it. And because for Jesus Himself, all Scripture, every jot, every tittle, was there in place until it was fulfilled. And the how it was fulfilled and all of that, again, that's a broader discussion than this, but at least its origin and its status as Scripture is never put into question by Jesus. Remember, as we said the first week here, three times He's tempted in the wilderness. Three times he quotes Satan in response authoritatively from God. All three of those quotes were from Deuteronomy. 
and they were happening in the very place in the wilderness, modern-day Jordan, where Israel was receiving Deuteronomy, at the foot of Mount Nebo. And I showed you a picture from my trip there this spring. And so, <clears throat> hopefully you're starting to see, like, oh, okay, this chapter may give me some difficulties in how do we translate this today, and even more difficulties in why doesn't it say what I want it to say? But that's the part where we then have to wrestle with God in reading Scripture and wrestle with Scripture and say, am I going to shape Scripture to what I want it to say or am I going to let it shape me to what it says? And if I have a problem or something I can't reconcile, what do I do with that? And that's the challenge of this, why we do this Bible study. Because this passage doesn't get preached on a lot, so we're going to do it right now. Um, We're chapter 22, and it starts at verse 13. These are now Moses' given commandments and, uh, about how Israel is going to live in the land at, under the basically what we know of as the Ten Commandments, but that's like the, the law, and, and every other law is an outflowing of the Ten Commandments. Now we're going to get into laws that have to do with, or, or an outgrowth from the laws against adultery and honoring your mother and father. Those two commandments are encased in this. Marriage and family. Uh, God's already dealt with worship. He's already dealt with um, uh, military and the conquering of the land and all the things as a nation that they're concerned about. And then the other thing that, that as a nation they're concerned about, marriage and family. And so God's going to talk to Moses is going to talk to the people now <clears throat> as a people within the patriarchal culture, not an egalitarian culture, of the ancient Near East. So we have to put ourselves again into their world before we start asking questions that if this text were written in our world, what we would want it to say. So in their world, we talked about this again, sex was the act that consummated the marriage. You had sex with somebody, hey, that was your spouse. If it wasn't, one or both of you were a prostitute. This is how it worked. And one or both of you couldn't get married again. Because marriage was not seen as personal fulfillment as it is today. Marriage was seen as extending the family and securing a life in the land. You married so that you continued on. It wasn't, I married because I'm, I'm in love and it's butterflies and it's this and that. Marriage was for them, like it is in many parts of the world still, more than anything else, the joining of two families. And so it was seen as your household thing. Today, we're in the age of eHarmony and Bumble and Tinder, and we don't really care if our parents like or don't like the person we're dating because we're just dating. And blah, 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 blah. Didn't work that way back then. Doesn't work that way now if you go to India or other places. Like, there, it was a family event. So anything that related to the marriage reflected not just on the husband and the wife, but on the family or families involved and jeopardized the in community. So again, we're so far from this in terms of how we live today, but you have to see it through those eyes and then read this and see how it would sound in that culture. First, if a man takes a wife and after laying with her, dislikes her, the Hebrew literally says hates her, I believe, and slanders her and gives her a bad name saying, I married this woman, but when I approached her, I did not find proof of her virginity. That's all innuendo for the sex act. Then the girl's father and mother shall bring proof that she was a virgin to the town elders at the gate. The girl's father will say to the elders, I gave my daughter in marriage to this man, but he dislikes her, hates her. Now he slandered her and said, I didn't find your daughter to be a virgin. But here's the proof of my daughter's virginity. Then her parents shall display the cloth ew, before the elders of the town, <clears throat> and the elders shall take the man and, NIV says, punish 
This is a verb that means corporal punishment. You could translate this as beat him or whip him. Then they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the girl's father because this man has given an Israelite virgin a bad name. She shall continue to be his wife. He may not divorce her as long as he lives. So the first scenario is a man marrying and then after the wedding night saying, uh, I changed my mind. I don't want her anymore. And what do you do now? Well, I can't divorce her because I don't have a legal reason unless she's not a virgin, which then becomes we entered into this marriage under false pretenses. See, marriage were contracts. So when you married, you were marrying someone, and whether we like it or not, whatever our sexual status is today, in the ancient Near East and Israel, if you married the young man, married a young woman from another family, implicit in that agreement was this young woman has not slept with other men, this young woman is a virgin and is being given to your young man to form a new family. And the man would pay, the man's family would pay a bride price to compensate the family for the loss of their daughter's work and ability. And then he would marry. And so he gained a daughter. They are financially compensated for loss of a family member. But the two families become one. So now it's talking about a man who does that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gets married, gets what he wants, has sex, and then goes, hmm, that bride price sure would be nice to have back. But I can't, oh, I know what I can do can lie about her. So this is a situation where the husband is trying to gain at the expense of the woman's reputation and her family's reputation. So that's why the family, one of the practices, again, gross, but they would keep the wedding sheet or the bedcloth or some evidence from the wedding night that would be stained with the blood of the woman from the hymen breaking. This is all nice lunchtime conversation. And that would be the family's basically proof that their daughter was a virgin or in other words it wasn't a, it wasn't a secret thing it was like a known thing and it was something that the uh, bride would be actually proud of like yes there's my proof yes i was pure on my wedding night yes i've not been a prostitute so that was what was involved so this law is saying that men are not allowed you're not just allowed to make up false charges and not only is he beaten for it by the elders of the town but he also has to pay the father of the young woman whose entire identity he's besmirched and double the bride price. The bride price was about 40 to 50 shekels at this point. He has to pay 100. So this is preventative law. This will prevent, the goal is to prevent men from doing this to women in Israel. And we, we don't know of any time in Israel where this actually happened, meaning this law probably worked. Um, so it was a lose-lose situation for any guy trying to do this and make up these charges about the woman. Because not only would that prevent, would, would that ruin her reputation in the town, but that would very likely prevent her from getting married ever again. And she would very likely be relegated to widow status or, or you know, just to live destitute in that culture. It doesn't mean that for us today. The stakes aren't like that. Guys date girls, oh, you slept with somebody before? Well, I don't love that, but, you know, okay. I forgive you, whatever. I mean, we don't have that, but it's not like that in this culture. It was an entirely different culture. And so within that culture, through the lens of that culture, this is God saying, hey, this is how you're not going to screw people over, metaphorically or literally, and destroy the reputation of somebody and an entire family. 
So even in this law, we see God's concern for the family and the marriage and the honor and all of that within that culture. Now, here's the question though. What if it's true? And this is the next section. If, however, the charge is true and no proof of the girl's virginity can be found, in other words, the parents don't have the proof of it, which every parent would have had, she shall be brought to the door of her father's house and there the men of the town shall stone her to death. She's done a disgraceful thing in Israel, and NIV says, by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. That's a, that's a bad translation. It should say, done a disgraceful thing in Israel by prostituting in her father's house, is what the verb says. Or by playing the prostitute, or being a prostitute in her father's house. You must purge the evil from among you. So in other words, this then presupposes that you didn't, there wasn't like secret affairs. Remember, these are villages. These are, it's not like strangers are always coming. You know, you're not swiping right or left on anybody's profile in these days. This is, you're camping together, you're living together, you're raising your family, your crops, your herds. So if somebody is, does not have proof of their daughter's virginity, it means that they did not guard their daughter's virginity. And that is the sin that's on them and on their family. And for us, again, it's harsh. But for them, it was, no, this is, prostitution is not cool in God's economy. And He does not want it. Now, if, we, if the story ended here, this would be like, oh man, this is incredibly harsh on prostitutes. <clears throat> That's when we have to read the rest of the canon. That's when we have to see things like the way God actually interacts with prostitutes in Scripture. Back in Genesis, think of Rahab. Uh, I mean, uh, back in... Uh, when we get to Joshua, think of Rahab. Back in Genesis, think of Tamar. Right? Think of Jesus' interactions with prostitutes or women who have been married multiple times. So, take all that into account. But this is showing structurally, sociologically, that that is not a viable means in Israel and that promiscuity, that sleeping with somebody who's not your spouse, is not a viable thing in Israel in contrast to many of the cultures around and so God is, again, He does, we have to hold the, the balance. You know, if we're progressive, we want to be like, well, sex, it doesn't matter, love everybody and mercy and grace. Yes, 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 Jesus embodied that. But we also have to say, but the standard that God sets is purity, it is virginity until marriage, it is faithfulness within marriage, that is the standard. And God Himself wants that as the standard. So we have to hold both of those. It gets uncomfortable, it gets tricky, but... Do with that what you will, because we need to move on. Verse 22. This is next a case that's going to deal with. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Adultery is a capital offense in Israel for both parties. Remember the famous story when Jesus and they bring the woman, she's caught in adultery, and they say this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. And Jesus, you know, going to... Where was the man? It wasn't a viable uh, uh, trial, if anything. Both. Were, so Jesus just dismisses the whole thing. He's like, get out of here. If you hadn't sinned, you cast the first stone. Like he's almost like, I'm not even entertaining this. You're twisting the law. The law is this. Now, this is also another interesting point. People believe, well, in the Bible, women were the property of the man. No. Children were, in some sense, likened to the the property, or better word, the responsibility of the father, and that has implications, but in terms of the husband and the wife, it wasn't a property thing because if you slept with another man's wife, um, 
the husband, the, the, the man who sleeps with the wife sh should pay the penalty, but why would you punish the property if it's just property? No, this implies that, that there are two adults that are both capable and both able to know God's law and rebel against God and break the most sacred covenant union other than the one between God and Israel, which is the one between husband and wife. And so what God's saying in here is that is a capital offense. There were no capital offense, no capital punishment for property crimes in Israel, as we've seen throughout. You were never put to death for stealing, for, for abusing other property, for, for you know, being dishonest in your game. No, capital crimes were reserved for covenant crimes of a, of a more extreme nature. And so it's just an interesting aside when we think about this and, and you read elsewhere in Scripture. Um, <clears throat> but again, we've got to move on. A few more minutes. If a man is going to now give examples of other types of sexuality outside of marriage, if a man happens to meet in town a virgin pledged to be married and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of the town and stone them to death. The girl, because she was in a town and did not scream for help, meaning that she agreed to this, this was a consensual thing, and the man, because he violated another man's wife. You must purge the evil from among you. When you pledged to be married, that was a legal marriage. Even if it wasn't consummated sexually yet, you had pledged to be married. This was why it was such a scandal when Mary was pregnant with Jesus. And Joseph knew, I don't want her to die, but I'm just going to divorce her quietly. In the Gospels, that's why. Because he knew the stakes. And he was like, I don't want, and it would shame her family, and it would be, a, he's like, I just, I don't want that. And so he's like, I'm going to divorce her quietly. That was always an option. And he took it because he cared about it. So again, these laws help inform our reading of the New Testament uh, during the times of Jesus and all of the things that swirl around the issue of family, marriage, sexuality. But that's if it happens in one of the cities, in one of the towns. And again, cities, towns, think of a camp. Don't think of a city like Charlotte. Think of like maybe a dozen families at most, uh, maybe two dozen, a small wall around it, and villages, and, and you lived with your family. You didn't have your own apartment. You didn't have your own condo. You didn't, no, this is all communal. We can't relate to that unless you've ever been on an extended camping trip with about 25 other people. Uh, maybe it's something like that. <clears throat> but... Now, that's if it happens in the camp, in the city. What about out in the country? Verse 25, But if out in the country a man happens to meet a girl pledged to be married and rapes her, only the man who has done this shall die. Do nothing to the girl. She's committed no sin deserving death. This case is like that of someone who attacks and murders his neighbor. For the man found the girl out in the country, and though the betrothed girl screamed, there was no one to rescue her. Rape is not something where you punish the victim. This is rape. This is not consensual sex. This is, the verb is he takes and NIV says rapes. It's he seizes and overpowers her. This is a, and look at this. In the Bible, rape is equated with murder. Rapists get a capital offense or a capital sentence. Rapists receive the death penalty. In the Bible, in Deuteronomy, in God's world of the ancient Near East, that's how much God values and sees in preserving and maintaining uh, not just the innocent, not just the women, not just the daughters, not just the wives, but the entire uh, concept of vulnerability and, and the person who is being taken advantage of. So, we'll finish, we'll, we'll wrap it up. <clears throat> and here's where NIV screws up, so I'm going to depart from it and tell you exactly why. 
Verse 28. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married, so an just somebody's daughter that he likes, <clears throat> uh, not pledged to be married, and he, and NIV says, rapes her. That is not the word used. It's not the word that was just used in the previous verse. And that's the, one of the reasons that I don't like the NIV in this chapter, even though I'm teaching from it. Because it, it, it translates... No, the word is, and he lays hold of her and lays with her. Or, and he uses her and sleeps with her. The first verb in the previous one was he overpowers and rapes. This is he... It, it's not as strong a word. It's he uses, he, he basically has sex with we, it doesn't say anything about consent or not consent or anything it's just it's a different word this is talking more about seduction than it is about rape the last law was talking about rape this is talking more about persuasion or just you know like it, it doesn't have the attack element that the previous verb had that's my point and so the NIV doesn't do a great job translating this and it misleads people into thinking that they you know oh well some you got raped you got to marry him the Bible says so, and all of this horrible stuff that people have said that's not true. Though, it goes on to say, if man happens to meet a virgin who's not pledged to be married and uses her and sleeps with her, and they are discovered, this is a secret thing happening, he shall pay the, father's, the girl's father 50 shekels of silver. What's that? The bride price. He must marry the girl, for he has violated her or humiliated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. So the penalty. Th this was. This was again. This is not. This is not the same as the previous law, which was about assault, rape. This is about seduction, using, of trying to obtain the benefits of marriage without paying the cost of marriage to the family, and and providing for this woman because you have you have dispersed someone, you have deflowered someone, whatever you want to use, you have rendered her unable to be married ever again because of your secret rendezvous that you two had. So, no, that's it. You're married now. That's what God's intention is. You don't get to, if you, what's the phrase, why would you buy the cow if you get the milk for free? Kind of thing. No, you, you gotta, it's all or nothing. Now, we know that there are laws later that the, the father has to approve. Again, none of these laws are like, in isolation, we have to read this with the rest of the laws in Exodus and Leviticus. And fathers always had the right of refusal over who their daughters married. Um, and, and if there was something, if this, in, in other words, if this, this is about preventing sleeping around in order for the man to be able to get what he wants sexually, but not have to commit or provide for the woman or the potential children that that act would bring into the world. This is pre-birth control, guys. When you had sex, you most likely got pregnant or you had a good chance of getting pregnant at least. So again, that's what God's doing in this, in that society. For we, if we transpose this directly into our modern sex in the city type society that we live in today, it doesn't work the way it would have been be intended here. And so we end up misreading the intent of the law. But when we read it through the eyes of the ancient Near East, we see the intent of the law in these seemingly harsh laws is to protect who would be a victim of someone using sex in order to get what they want. That's what God, that's what's upheld in these laws. That's what they would have read in this culture. The last one he ends with, he says, a man is not to marry his father's wife. That means like you know, stepmother, not talking about his biological mother. He must not, NIV says, dishonor his father's bed. That's not what the Hebrew says at all. He must not uncover the nakedness of his father. 
is what that verse says. That has implications for how you read the story way back in Genesis about Ham walking in and, and looking on the nakedness of his father and what happened in that tent and why he was cursed so vehemently for it. And I'll let you study that on your own. But that's what it literally says. So God is saying again, family trees are not going to be brambles. They're not going to intertwine. All right? They're going to be like, we, we want to keep things in order. We want to preserve the family. We want to preserve the marriage. We want to preserve the people in society who are the m- most vulnerable. And that's what all these laws have in common in terms of their aim, in terms of their thrust. But these laws raise a ton of questions about Old Testament ethics. What do we do today with these laws? And for that, I'm mentioning this so it'll be on video and audio. Get a copy of the book, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God by Christopher Wright. And he has extensive discussion of this and other passages and how today uh, we are to view and read these laws and be informed by them. But that's what I want you to leave you with. we got to go. We're out of time. We're actually two minutes over. Sorry about that, but dessert... Uh, hijacked us for the day. Have a great week. Come back next week and bring a friend. Tell your coworkers we're here every week.